breakfast for over a year. So we're looking forward to doing those things. So everything else, as I said, is in your bulletin. Let's have a Bible study. Matthew chapter 20. Okay. As you open up your Bibles, Matthew chapter 20, we've gone as far as verse 29. We're going to move into chapter 21. But as we go through Matthew, we've been doing it, going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We'll start at verse 29 of chapter 20. Father, as we come on this holiday weekend, we want to remember and honor those who gave the ultimate sacrifice in service for our nation, in fighting for our freedoms. We are able to meet here this morning freely because of that, because of those who did not come home, that paid the ultimate sacrifice. Lord, I thank you for them. We remember them. For all those who have served our veterans and those who are serving presently, that we ask for your hand to be upon them and their families. Lord, we lift up our nation. We look around a nation that was founded upon biblical principles. As we see the direction we're going, it concerns us spiritually, morally, calling evil good and good evil more and more. We need you. That the church, Lord, that we would get back to the truth of your word, that we would stand for righteousness, that we would declare that which is good and decent and honorable before your sight, that we would be light. And Lord, we need you. We need you desperately. And we know that sin is a reproach to any nation. But blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And I pray that this holiday weekend, we wouldn't take for granted what we have, our freedoms. And those who paid the ultimate sacrifice for that. I pray that right now, as I know that we come in the rain and we can hear the rain on the roof, we can hear the sound of thunder above us, but it wouldn't distract us away or anything else. Phones going off, but we want to hear you, Lord, as we have a few minutes in your word to touch our hearts because you're speaking to us right now through your word. So may we be attentive, opening our ears and our eyes to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we find ourselves at this point in Matthew, keep in mind that Jesus has left uh, Galilee for the very last time. He's headed to Jerusalem. He's been on the far side of the Jordan. He's making his way into the Jordan Valley. That's where the Dead Sea is. And there's a large multitude that is traveling with Jesus. And the religious leaders are a part of that multitude as they're coming to test him. The parents, as we saw in the previous chapter, are coming to him to bring their children to be blessed by him. And then there are others that came to him to receive a healing from him. 
But we've also seen that our Lord has been teaching his disciples and how they can truly be great in the kingdom of God. It was a topic that came up that we've seen it since chapter 18. As they were discussing, they were asking them, who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? And Jesus has been talking to them about that very thing. And even though Jesus has been talking to them about being great in the kingdom of God, he's also been talking about his death that will take place when he gets to Jerusalem. They still are anticipating that he's going to usher in the kingdom. And as we saw last week, that it was the mother of James and John that came to Jesus asking if they could sit on his right and on his left in, in your kingdom. Be number one and number two. And Jesus responded, as we saw, that he said, you don't know what you ask. It is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared for by my Father. And then Jesus would gather his disciples to himself and said, if you want to be great, then you need to be the servant of all. If you desire to be first, then you need to be last. And I hope that as we're traveling through Matthew here, and as we've been discussing over the last few weeks, that more and more we are beginning to understand then when it comes to the kingdom of God, greatness is not achieved like in the world. You see, the world comes along and says to you and to me, if you want to be great, and that's what a lot of people desire, to be great in the world, that you need to lord over others. You need to be served. You look out for number one. You live for yourself, and you focus on yourself. And Jesus says to you and to me as believers, what you're to do is you are to die to self. And in chapter 18, as this topic came up, we know that Jesus, answering his disciples, he didn't rebuke them. He wasn't angry with them. As they're, they're asking him, who's the greatest in the kingdom? But he would use a child as an illustration and put that child in the midst of them and said, you receive a child in my name. And Jesus, not only teaching about servanthood and humility, but we know that he lived it. He would say, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom to many I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die for many, die for sinful humanity. And now as we will finish the chapter, move into chapter 21, we're going to see his entrance, what is called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now we talked about it a couple months ago on Palm Sunday from John's gospel, but as we pick it up from Matthew's narrative, we're going to look at a few points that, that are worth considering that we didn't talk about a couple months ago. But as we finish chapter 20 here in verse 29, we read, Now as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. Jesus is in the Jordan Valley. It's near the Dead Sea. It's the lowest point on the face of the earth, about 1,200 feet below sea level. And Jesus is going to make that climb up to Jerusalem, which is about 2,300 feet above sea level. It's a relatively short distance, only about 20 miles from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's a steep climb. And the Jordan Valley, it's interesting where Jericho is located, was a major trade route between the continents. And you see Israel, even though it's a small country, uniquely it is you know, located geographically where three continents, that is Asia and Europe and Africa, meet together. So with that in mind, you would have a lot of travelers that would come through the area, through the Jordan Valley, traders and merchants and caravans. Also in the Dead Sea, the people would come and they would put mud from the Dead Sea all over them. And they would come uh, as it was popular for beauty 
cream and for skin care today. If you go to the Dead Sea, and we do that when we take our trips, you can go there, you can float in the Dead Sea, you can't see sink because it's so full of salt, you just kind of bob up and down. But you see people that are putting mud all over themselves, and they walk around, you know, with this mud, and then they, they clean it off because they believe it helps their skin. But also at this time, many people are pouring into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And also in that area of Jericho, which was like a desert oasis, there are those who would winter there at that time because it's very warm in the winter in the 70s and in the 80s in the heart of winter. But there was a shrub that would grow that was believed to have medicinal value for the eyes. So with that in mind, there would be this large multitude that's traveling with Jesus, but also there would be a, a number of people that are traveling through traders. There are those who are making their way to Jerusalem for the feast, and there will also be a number of blind people that would be in that area. And they would be there hoping that somehow they would receive some kind of healing through the use of that shrub. And when it didn't happen, they would find themselves sitting along the roadside, begging for alms, you know, for money from the people passing by. And Jesus is traveling through with this large multitude, as Matthew records here. And no doubt these two blind men could hear all the people. I imagine they, they sense there's some excitement, this commotion going on. And these two blind individuals probably thinking, what's going on? Why all the noise? And then uh, why all the sound of the people? And perhaps they would hear somebody that would say, there he is, he's coming, he is coming, Jesus of Nazareth. And these two blind men, no doubt hearing the fame of Jesus, his ability to be able to heal, including the blind, which he had done numerous times up in the Galilee, they no doubt are thinking, this is our chance. We've, we've got to get his attention. And they're crying out, and it's in a loud voice we know it is. They're saying, have mercy on us, Lord. Son of David, have mercy on us. Son of David. And they keep calling out. They're loud, and the multitude warned them as we continue reading in verse 31 that they should be quiet. But they cried out all the more, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight and they followed him. It would be in Luke's gospel that tells us of this account that these two blind men, when they were healed, they would come and they would follow him. And Luke adds that they would glorify God. And I believe that there are some very important lessons and things for us to consider in this little vignette that's recorded for us here in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. That first of all, if you follow the Lord as they did, you can write this in your margins or notes or take note of it, that if you follow the Lord as they did and glorify Him, you know what the result's going to be? That you're going to have a gladness of heart. You contrast these two individuals individuals with the rich young ruler in the previous chapter that rich young ruler when jesus said come and follow me you got a problem coveting you amassed all this wealth you need to give away and come follow me because your wealth has a priority over me is it's your possessions are possessing your heart and get rid of it and come and follow me it's going to lead you to calvary but the rich young ruler refused to do so and he went away sorrowful because he was not willing to follow the Lord. 
And if things of the world have your heart, desire, passion, priority, there will be a sadness. It's like I mentioned Nebuchadnezzar there 600 years before Jesus. The king of Babylon, Daniel tells us that he flourished in his palace, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. He is one that had all the money, prestige, power, everything anyone would want in the world. And as he flourished in his palace, yet he was troubled, Daniel records, in his soul greatly. And sometimes we can look at those who seem to have it all, or the most, the one that is flourishing in their career, the one that seems to have so many things of the world and everything's going well. And we can forget that there can be a sadness in their hearts if they don't have the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is true with anyone, whether they're rich or they're poor. In Mark's account of this story, Mark, inspired by the Spirit of God, that he focuses on one of those individuals. His name is Bartimaeus. And perhaps if you grew up as a child in Sunday school, you heard of Bartimaeus, the, the blind man. But it tells us that when Jesus called Bartimaeus, he said, Bartimaeus, come to me, that when he did, that it's interesting that Mark records that he left his garment there. He just left it behind. Uh, the garment that he would use, that people would throw money and alms to. He left it behind, no need of it anymore. And he followed the Lord, and he glorified the Lord, and he had a gladness of heart. I look at the things, and I think about the things that people left to follow after the Lord. You know, in the Gospels, we know that It was Peter, James, uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John, brothers, those disciples, that Jesus said, come and follow me. They were mending their nets. They were washing their nets. And what does it tell us? That they left their nets and they immediately followed the Lord. I think about the woman at the well in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, that as Jesus is talking to her about living water, what does it tell us? That she left her water pot there, she went into town, and she said to the men that, come and see the man that told me everything about me, and she would introduce them to Jesus. But she left her water pot there. I think about even in the Old Testament how Abraham was told, leave your father's house and I'll show you the place that you're going to dwell, Abraham, and I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. So as we look at those who left things to follow after the Lord, I just wonder, perhaps, could it be that the Lord might be speaking to somebody here today that he's saying, I want you to leave that behind. I want you to leave it behind and come and follow me wholeheartedly. It's keeping you from having a gladness of heart. It's keeping you from, from walking with me closely and knowing me more. And, and so I want you to leave it behind. What is it that the Lord perhaps might be saying to you as we desire to follow after him, as we glorify him, as we desire to have that gladness of heart? So, number one, that's what we learned. Secondly, it is only in following after the Lord that you'll be able to clearly see. That is, spiritually see. Those who follow after the world, they don't see spiritually. We need to keep that in mind. Paul writes to the Corinthian church that Satan has blinded those who have, you know, no understanding. That is, those who are non-believers, the natural man. He, He has blinded them. There's a blindfold spiritually over them, and they don't understand us. They don't get us. And we need to remember that. And you can talk to them about spiritual things, and and they're just blind to it, and it can frustrate us. But here's the thing. 
as we pray for people, as you pray for your family members and you pray for your neighbors and coworkers and friends that you know that aren't believers, pray, Lord, take the spiritual blindness away from them. Take that blindfold off that they might see you clearly because you and I, we can see things. We see things spiritually, but they don't. They don't get it. They don't get you and me. Soften their hearts, Lord. Open their ears spiritually. Open up their eyes so they can see you and come to you. And then thirdly, the third thing that I get from this account of these two blind men, I see that these two men were men of humility because they're crying out constantly, son of David. And we know that's a messianic term. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And you might be thinking, well, where's the humility in that? Well, they weren't complaining. They weren't murmuring against the Lord. How come, Lord, we're blind? How come we have to be here in this hot desert and, and begging for money? That can be our tendency in life. It can be my tendency at times when I'm going through difficulties or going through challenges or I hurt in my life or when there's pain and, and, and when there's trials that come my way. Why do I have this problem? I, I deserve better. Lord, why aren't you working in this way? Rather than going to the Lord in humility and appealing to his goodness and his grace and his mercy, which is new every morning in his compassion, which leads us to number four, that we see once again that Jesus had compassion. Matthew writes that. It's a familiar theme that we see going through Matthew's gospel. Jesus had compassion for these two men, and he stopped and said, what do you want me to do for you? The prophet Jeremiah, that he would write in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22, through the Lord's mercy we are not consumed because its compassion fails not. Our Lord is a compassionate God who desires to work for you, for me, for those of us who are in need, those of us who come to him. He wants us to ask, please ask, that your joy may be full, he tells us. He may work in a way that is different than what we expect and in a timing that is different. But he would say to you and to me, because he's the compassionate high priest, that he has sympathy for us, that we can go to the throne of grace, as Hebrew declares, in a time of need. What would you have me to do for you? And Jesus would bring healing, but he would do something even greater for them in a few short days, and that is he would die for them, that there might be healing spiritually, the forgiveness of sin. And then fifthly, lastly, these men were persistent. You notice the people are saying, pipe down, be quiet. Matthew records that they cried out even all the more. They were persistent. And we can have a tendency, and it can happen with me as well, to, to give up too quickly when it comes to prayer, when it comes to ministering, when it comes to our walk with the Lord. I go through a hard time, a difficult time. This week I was at the pastor's conference and was able to see some of the guys I haven't been able to see for over a year, guys that I've ministered alongside of here in Colorado for years. And it was good to talk with them and, and be able to share with them and and many of them sharing about how this last year was difficult. And a couple of them even were saying there were times where they felt like they were just ready to give up the ministry. They were ready to quit. And it wasn't just all about COVID, but all the other things that they are facing and the difficulty. And I am so glad that they didn't give up. That the encouragement and the exhortation is given to them and is given to you. Keep fighting the good fight. It's a good fight, folks. Keep fighting the good fight. 
Keep running your race. Don't quit. Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Don't give up. And even as we talked about last week, that there are rewards that the Lord desires to reward us with as we look to him and as we are used by him. And David, when he was in a difficult situation and hurting in his heart, and he's out in the wilderness, he would write in Psalm 62 that my soul waits silently for God alone. Quietly, he waited on the Lord. He didn't go around, as I've already mentioned, complaining to everyone. He said, my expectation is from him or my hope is from him. He expected God to work. He knew that God was his hope and he waited continually. I trust in him at all times. And as we wait on the Lord, and it's not easy to do that, to wait on the Lord, that he promises that he'll be good to us. He promises that he will strengthen us. He promises that he will work in the way that he desires for good. And I can look to him and continue to cry out to him, a merciful, compassionate God. And now Jesus begins to make that climb up to Jerusalem as we read in chapter 21, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. So Jesus near Jerusalem, keep in mind that Jesus has already spoken to his disciples about what he was going to accomplish when he got there, about his suffering and death and resurrection. In verse 18 of, of chapter 20, he said, we're going to go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed by the religious leaders. They'll condemn him to death. He's going to be delivered, he said. I'll be delivered to the Gentiles and mocked and scourged, and, and I'm going to be crucified. But I'm going to rise again from the third day, on the third day. And as they draw near to Jerusalem, they came to the village of Bethpage, which means the house of unripe figs, on the east side of the Mount of Olives. Now, when you get to the Mount of Olives, from the, from the Dead Sea up to the Mount of Olives, and as you look to the west, you see the old city of Jerusalem. They would be able to look at the temple proper at that time, the temple which was a magnificent structure. You see, in the Old Testament, as we've been going through it, that we know that the first temple period would include and would um, come to an end, conclude when Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. came in and destroyed the first temple. It was a magnificent building, as you read Solomon building it, overlaid it with gold and, and all of that. But then after the captivity of 70 years, when Zerubbabel comes back from the captivity, they rebuild the second temple. It was a very modest building. But it was during the time of Jesus, his birth, that Herod the Great comes along and he remodeled the second temple. Now keep that in mind this week and then next week as we're going to see, or the week after our anniversary, when he cleanses the temple. But it was magnificent. Huge ornate stones, large courtyards. It was one of the wonders of the world. And when you're on the Mount of Olives and you're looking down on all of that, Jerusalem was called the Golden City for two reasons, because the temple overlaid with gold. Second of all, they used the Jerusalem stones. They still use them today. They mine it, and the construction in Jerusalem is uh, the Jerusalem stones that are golden in color. So Jerusalem was called the, the Golden City. And the, as Jesus draws near Jeru to Jerusalem, the people from all over the nation and uh, even the known world we're coming to celebrate the feast, as I said. And the city would be very, very crowded. 
And with Roman power, there would be a lot of Roman soldiers present. The governor of the region, Pontius Pilate, would be present as he would travel from Caesarea. Caesarea is right on the coast there, uh, Mediterranean Sea. It's interesting that liberal scholars for a long time they said there was no Pontius Pilate. The Bible is wrong. There's no record of a Pontius Pilate ever existing. Well, in the 60s, in Caesarea, it was a Roman capital of that area. Uh, you know, the, the Roman leaders and, and soldiers were there in Caesarea. And Pontius Pilate obviously stayed there for much of the time during the year. They find this stone there that has the name Governor Pontius Pilate proving the liberal scholars wrong once again, that the Bible is true. So what would happen is, is Pontius Pilate would come up to Jerusalem from the west, from the other direction, and he would come up and think about it. As he would come for the feast, because he has to be there, all these people are pouring into Jerusalem. It's the feast. You know, he can't monitor things from Caesarea. There's no Skype. There's no communication. There's none of those things, webcams or, or phones or anything like that. So he has to come up from the other side, from the east. He comes up to Jerusalem, and you know that he has soldiers all around him. They're coming with horses. They're coming in the display of power. Pontius Pilate in the middle of them with banners flying. They came up a couple days, the day before the, the Feast of Passover, and he is there in case there's any kind of insurrection, any kind of rebelling of the Jews, anyone who's going to cause a problem, an uproar, he can dispatch, dispatch those soldiers. Matter of fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes that there would be 10 times the normal number of soldiers there ready to be used if they needed to. And during this Passover here, there is an atmosphere of excitement. There's a different feeling at this Passover. The people are excited. Uh, they're wondering, is Jesus, is he going to usher in the kingdom of heaven? Uh, the, Luke tells us that they were expecting that. And as they draw near Jerusalem, Jesus and his multitude at the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells the two of his disciples, as we continue reading in verse 2, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. And all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. So Jesus is ready to make his entrance into Jerusalem. He's going to make his way down the mountain. He's going to go by the Garden of Gethsemane across the Kidron Valley. He's going to come into the city. And as he comes into the city, I want to draw attention once again to verse 3, that as he says, if anyone asks why you're taking the donkey and the colt with her, you say that the Lord has need of them. Have you ever noticed that oftentimes as we read the Gospels, that Jesus would borrow things to do his work? to accomplish the things of the kingdom. He would borrow a, a, a stable, a manger in which to be born. He would say to Peter, Peter, I want to borrow your boat so I can preach to the multitudes there on the shore. He would take some fish and loaves from a small boy to feed the multitude. And here he borrows a donkey to make his triumphal entry. In a couple days, he's going to borrow a coin to teach a powerful lesson. 
And then later on in the week, he's going to borrow a tomb, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, that he might resurrect. And I believe the Lord would say to all of us and to you personally, specifically, that I'd like to borrow you. I'd like to use you, borrow you if you would. And what you've been blessed with, your time, your gifts, your heart, your ability, that you might be used in the kingdom, that you might be a blessing to others to accomplish his work. But secondly, he will use this donkey in his triumphal entry. Now, what has been told to me is that, you know, donkeys, they, they have a reputation. I think that most of us know this, of being hard-headed, being stubborn. And we will see that when Jesus sat on that little donkey, most of you know the story here, that it would yield quietly to him, obediently. And Jesus didn't go riding down the hill with the little colt, the little fold, you know, not wanting to go forward. And Jesus is there kicking the side of it, saying, come on, move forward. That little colt didn't go off on the side through the trees. It didn't go bucking all the way down the hill. But it yielded to Jesus. It was responsive, even though it had never been written. And as I yield my life to him, even though I'll speak for myself, that there are times that I can have the characteristics of being stubborn and hard-headed. Lord, I'm going to go my own direction at this time. Lord, I'm not going to move forward when you're telling me to move forward. Lord, I'm going to buck this, what you're telling me that I need to do through your word. But as I humbly and as I very quietly and obediently just yield to him, and when I say truly, Lord, I want you to sit upon the throne of my heart, that that's when he can use you and me to accomplish his purposes, to do great things for the kingdom. So the Lord desires to be on the throne of our hearts to use us. And as we do that, what Jesus commands us to do in verse 7, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. That's where we get our English word earthquake, seismic. That's where we get our English word seismic, which means earthquake in the Greek. The whole city was moved. Things were shaken. They've never seen anything like this before. Before. Who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, a couple of things to note here in this triumphal entry of Jesus. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, the great multitude crying out, Hosanna, which means saved now. Hosanna to the son of David. Again, as we have discussed, a messianic term. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the people are quoting from Psalm 118, which was a prophetic psalm speaking of the coming of Messiah. Now, you recall going through Matthew's gospel that we have seen, particularly when he was up in the Galilee, that when he did miracles, remember that oftentimes he would say to the people, don't go and tell anyone. Don't mention this to anyone. And usually they would go and tell somebody. But he would say, don't tell anyone. Don't let it be known what I've done for you. In the feeding of the 5,000 that we know that they were about ready to take him by force and he dismissed the crowds. 
Here we see, for the very first time on this day, that Jesus is allowing a public proclamation of himself that he is the Messiah. Interesting that he does it on this day. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the people crying Hosanna, and they're waving the palm branches. And we talked about that two months ago, the, the historical background to that. But as they're waving the palm branches, it, it was a symbol of political, military, national freedom. They're thinking that the kingdom's going to be ushered in, the Romans are going to be through, but it's going to be just a few short days later that the Romans are going to be leading the son of David down the streets of Jerusalem to Calvary. I wonder what they thought when they saw Jesus coming into Jerusalem, lowly riding on the back of, of this, this colt, riding into Jerusalem. They're probably chuckling. They're probably laughing. They're thinking, this is your Messiah. Remember, Pontius Pilate would come up with this great entourage of soldiers and on horses and banners and a great display of military power, and this is your Messiah? And that's why I think one of the reasons why they greatly wanted to humiliate him, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, I'm going to be handed over to Rome, and they beat him like no one has ever been beaten. Isaiah said that he was marred more than any other man. After he took that beating, and Isaiah says they pulled out his beard, that they made that crown of thorns around you know, his head, the pounded on his head, the Judean thorns that you can see today, about three inches long, and their hardest nails, and, you know, like razors. And when they pounded, pounded that crown of thorns on his head, it lacerated his scalp, no doubt. And you know how head wounds are. And they would mock him. And they would spit in his face. And they would say, you're a king, here's your crown, a crown of thorns. They wanted to humiliate him, and they did, and, and they scourged him. Incredible. We know that the triumphal entry of Jesus is really going to be Revelation chapter 19. When he comes back, and he will be wearing a crown, coming back in great power and glory. But here we see that the soldiers are, they're kind of snickering and they're chuckling. The crowd is cheering. Luke gives them some additional insight to the triumphal entry that the religious leaders, they're complaining. They're saying, you tell your disciples to stop. This is blasphemy. They knew what the crowd was implying when they're crying out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're angry. So here are the soldiers chuckling. The people are cheering, waving their palm branches. The religious leaders are complaining. And Jesus, as he comes into the city, he's crying. He's weeping. Luke tells us of that. Let me read that account in chapter 19 of Luke. I'll, I'll read it to you. But verse 41, that as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he drew near. He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because, listen, you did not know the time of your visitation. He's speaking about what would happen in 70 AD, just under 30 years later, 
that roamed the Titus legions surrounded Jerusalem. They broke through the walls. They tore the temple apart, not one stone upon another. And Josephus writes 1.1 million Jews were killed at that time. They were then dispersed to the nations out of their homeland for the next 2,000 years. Jesus said, this is going to happen. You're going to be left desolate. There's going to be great death and devastation and destruction like you've never seen before, not since Babylon. Matter of fact, what is interesting, that on the calendar, the same day that Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the first temple, same day that Titus destroyed the second temple. Very fascinating. But as Jesus said, you didn't know the day of your visitation. That's very significant. You see, not only was this a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, but also of Daniel chapter 9. I think it's one of the most amazing prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming. There's over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus' coming. 200, over 200 concerning his second coming. Over 100 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning his first coming, his birth, life, death, and resurrection. We don't have time to go into it, but the chances of one person coming along and fulfilling you know, just a, a few of those prophecies is astronomical. Uh, the, the law of compound probability. One person coming along and fulfilling just four of the prophecies of the Old Testament, of one man coming along fulfilling them, four of them out of the over 100, speaking of his first coming, is like 1 to the 10th to the 17th power. We know that Daniel chapter 9 gives one of the most amazing prophecies concerning his first coming. Daniel's praying. The Babylonian captivity is just about over. He's praying about the 70 years coming to an end. Gabriel comes along and interrupts him and says, I come to give you understanding, not about 70 years, Daniel, but about 70 weeks. And no one understand, Daniel, this, that 70 weeks or 70 periods of seven years are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, part of that prophecy, when we go through the book of Daniel, that we will look at the whole prophecy, and it's important to understand that whole prophecy because if you don't, you're going to get all goofed up and mixed up concerning his second coming. But the prophecy, part of it goes, know therefore and understand that the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. That is 69 weeks. Remember that Jerusalem was in ruins in 586 B.C., so was there a time that you can look at the Bible that the command came out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem that you can start counting 69 weeks or that is 483 years or 173,880 days using the 360-day calendar, the Jewish calendar? Well, what is interesting is you go to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And King Artaxerxes, he knows that Nehemiah, his countenance was off. And he asked Nehemiah, what's wrong? Nehemiah had gotten word that Jerusalem still laid in rubble. You see, in 536 B.C., after the 70 years of captivity, that it was commanded that they, or a decree was given, that they could go back and rebuild the temple. But it wasn't until Nehemiah's time in 445 B.C., that under the reign of Artaxerxes, that Nehemiah said, I want to go back and I want to build a wall around Jerusalem and, and rebuild the city. It was still in ruins in the streets. So Daniel's prophecy says that when the command comes out to rebuild and restore Jerusalem until coming of Messiah the Prince shall be 69 weeks, 483 years, 173,880 days. 
There's a mathematician, a professor, Peter Stoner, who wrote a book, Science Speaks. He writes about compound probability, about the chances of one person coming along and fulfilling all of the prophecies. We, we can't even calculate it. And he also would write about how this prophecy in Daniel, the 70 weeks of Daniel, that was there a time that we can calculate when that command came out? Well, it tells us in, in, in Nehemiah chapter 2 that in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes, in the month of Nisan, when a day isn't given, it's the first day. So with the help of the British Royal Observatory, Peter Stoner and them, they did the calculations. And, and they came up with, the command came out on March 14th, 445 B.C., to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. Go ahead, Nehemiah. So they begin to count, 173,880 days. And they came to April 6, 32 AD. What happened on April 6, 32 AD? Jesus gets on a donkey, and he rides into Jerusalem, and he's weeping, and he's saying, you didn't know the day of your visitation. You know, you get these people that come along, they have for the last 2,000 years, you know, they claim to be Jesus. I'm the Messiah. Really? Did you come into Jerusalem 173,880 days after the command to rebuild and restore Jerusalem? I don't think so. Only one man. That's Jesus. That's one prophecy. And he's weeping and he's saying, you guys should have known the day of your visitation. Amazing prophecy. So I want to leave you with this. Don't miss the day of his visitation to you, even on this day. And maybe he's speaking to somebody that's here, or you're watching online, or later on the radio. They're saying, I want you to give your heart and your life to me. Because today is the day of salvation. Or maybe he's speaking to you right now, some of the things that we've talked about. He's saying, I want you to leave that behind. I, I want you to have a gladness of heart. I want to borrow you, and I want to use you. Don't miss the day of your visitation as he's speaking to your heart. Because as you are heeding and listening, and as you're saying, yes, Lord, here I am. Because not only do I want you to save me as you sit upon the throne of my heart, but to walk with you all the days of my life. And I don't want to miss this time the things that you're saying to me as you're visiting me through your word. And Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for this important lesson given to us. And Lord, I just ask that you would just, Lord, to anyone that is here, that they have not given their life to you, that this is the day of your visitation to them. Today is the day of salvation. And they would understand that you are the Savior of the world. Not a Savior. You're the Savior. And that you would open up your heart to him. And that you would come and surrender your life to him. You can come right now sincerely in your heart, coming in faith. And praying, Jesus, I come to you and I confess that I am a sinner in need of forgiveness. And you died on the cross for me. Forgive me. 
I believe you died on the cross for my sins and you rose again. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my life as my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for forgiving me and bringing me into the family of God in this new beginning. And I want to walk with you and know you all the days of my life in Jesus' name. But for all of us, Lord, whatever you're speaking to our hearts, we want to see spiritually. We want to come to you humbly. We want to walk with you obediently. So, Lord, I thank you for speaking to our hearts. Lord, I pray you bless everyone here. I pray for this week, the Vacation Bible School, that you bless those kids, everyone that comes. That those who don't know you would come to know you. Lord, that we as a church, as we look forward to the years ahead, months ahead, weeks ahead, however long you tarry, that we would be used of you. And Lord, that you help us to keep our eyes on you. Thank you for this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.